has been educating and inspiring individuals, entrepreneurs, and leaders for decades. He's helped millions of people to move past the mental barriers that were holding them back from stepping to their power to become a better version of themselves and live a kick-ass life. I know this firsthand as I'm Jenny, Dan's wife. And here's your host, Dan Locke. Today, Dan talks with Matt Cooper, the CEO of Skillshare. Dan and Matt discuss how to build a strong, resilient culture in your company, the problem with adding too much value, and how deadly business mistakes can put you out of business. Now, here's Dan and Matt. If you want a whole new way to increase your value to the world while earning a lot more money in life, go to www.unlockitbook.com and that is www.unlockitbook.com, unlockitbook.com and get a copy of my new book. Within Unlock It, you will discover a set of unique strategies to building personal wealth in ways you have never imagined. Again, go to www.unlockitbook.com. Welcome to that episode of The Dan Lock Show. Now, if you've been following me for any length of time, you know that I'm very, very passionate about education. I run a global education company with students now in over 150 countries. So today I am very, very excited to bring you on a, and a phenomenal, phenomenal CEO who's got a lot of experience in this particular space. You may have heard of the company, Skillshare. He's a CEO of Skillshare and now all over, impacting over 4 million students with over 22,000 plus classes. That is an amazing, amazing number. So I'm very pleased to join by Matt Cooper, CEO of Skillshare. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Matt, share with us, how did you get into the whole startup world? Yeah. So uh, I think I originally started in uh, startups through uh, some combination of desperation and unemployment. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd been an investment banker for four years, mm. uh, moved out to California in 2002. They had actually offered to transfer me out. And I said, nope, I'm done. You know, uh, four years of 90 hour weeks was enough. Um, and I found out the hard way that being an unemployed telecom investment banker in Silicon Valley in 2002 was not exactly the most uh, enviable background. So I mm. uh, started networking, just meeting people, um, started a small consulting firm with another guy I had uh, actually met via Craigslist. Mm. Uh, and then, Craigslist? Seriously? Craigslist. Yeah, it's always the, uh, the ideal place to go find a business. Partner. That's right. Uh, so it was early and I was desperate. So uh, we uh, actually, through that, I met a company called Acola. I met the CEO uh, of a recruiting outsourcing company. Um, and he was, he had had a business, went through, survived the dot com uh, explosion, but not by much. Uh, and so I helped him rebuild the business. So that was my really, my first true startup. So I spent uh, five great years at Acola, left there to go to, uh, what uh, was then Odesk, now Upwork, a uh, big little freelancer platform, mm. uh, went public last year. Um, went from there to be the CEO of a company called Visually, which was a similar model to Odesk's enterprise business, which I built out, um, where we would uh, do, we had a freelance backend to do visual work for brands and agencies. Mm. Uh, sold that in 2016 and then joined Skillshare uh, in November of 2016. 
Man, it's like from your background as an investment, you know, in, in investment banking, what advantages, advantages did that give you as a CEO for these startups? Yeah, I mean, I think having the, uh, having the finance background, I, yeah, I think the best analogy is it's like going from being a pit mechanic to being a race car driver. <laughs> yes, it's very true. I, knew how the, you know, I know how the engine works. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, having that finance background, I think, helps me understand you know, where the operating leverage is in the business, where the financial leverage is in the business. Mm. So that, you know, if we're going to focus on a particular initiative, which ones are actually going to result in, in the right business outcomes. Uh, so I think having that grounding has helped me quite a bit. Mm. And I'm actually in the process of building a, a SaaS company as well. I'd love to your advice on this. Like what, would, what advice would you have for someone who's building maybe a platform or a software company, like some of the lessons that you learned what are some things that you would advise people to, to pay attention to or to avoid? Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, just understanding your new, your unit economics is really important. Um, okay. yeah, I think a lot of SaaS companies, you know, the general SaaS model is you spend a lot of money up front to acquire a customer and then you hope and pray that they hang on long enough to pay it off. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, uh, that can be a very unsettling. Oh, before you burn, burn all the cash, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a great way to chew up a lot of cash quickly. So, you know, understanding, um, what those, you know, what that cash recovery period looks like, um, and building your business around it, uh, versus assuming that it's going to get better and you're building your business around that. Uh, and I think that's been the, um, you know, the demise of many, startups, particularly in SaaS and platform businesses, they just never quite got that cost of acquisition to lifetime value of the customer right. They never quite got their cash recovery period nailed down. Um, and I think the, you know, the other thing, particularly for marketplace businesses where the actual net revenue is a relatively small percentage of the transactions being supported, uh, you got to build your business around the net revenue, not the gross. Uh, and it's real easy to confuse the two. Um, I think particularly when you're small, mm. if customers are spending a million dollars, but you're only getting 10,000, that's the, that's the, uh, the margin you have to work with. Uh, so, um, I think there's some, uh, interesting sort of vertical niche marketplaces that as long as the team is really small and lean could be great little businesses. They're probably not massive venture backed billion dollar companies. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I think just understanding how those economics line up is really important. So what you're saying is in the beginning, kind of build a model where forget trying to, Oh, if I grow to a certain amount of, of users, I go to go to a certain amount of, of volume, then suddenly I'll become profitable. We've got to figure out how to be profitable as quickly as possible, break even point and then making a profit. Then from there you, you can build. Where, where do you see like a lot of companies? Maybe, necessarily, uh, maybe not necessarily profitable overall, but at least on a contribution margin business basis, you mm. know, are you at least earning positive income out of everybody that's coming in the door versus right. paying $10 to acquire a customer that's worth five and I'm going to make up for it with scale. <laughs> that's not a, a formula for success. Right, right, right. And, and, but I think a lot of even, even SaaS companies, they have this, ideas, you know, or we build to a certain point, we, 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 we have certain percentage of market share, then we're going we're gonna to sell that, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go public. So uh, no, don't worry about that stuff. We, you know, we, it's okay. Everything is going to work out fine. What, what's your take on, on that kind of philosophy? Yeah, look, if, you're, if, if you turn out to be Facebook, Instagram, you know, then great, you're right. <laughs> uh, but most of them aren't. And those are the guys who end up 
looking for jobs at Facebook. And so, I, you know, I think uh, there's a little dose of reality um, that, you know, I'm probably not Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of startup CEOs and founders uh, are assuming nothing but the best. Uh, I like to, to hope for the best and plan for the worst. Mm. Um, you know, I think the number one job of any CEO and founder is make sure the company is healthy and stable and, and will survive. And yeah, that buys you the time to find, uh, find the opportunities and find the sweet spot in the market and make sure you have product market fit. Uh, but I think a lot of companies come in swinging from the, from the fences from day one. Mm. And again, as long as you're okay with a very high failure rate, go for it. Uh, but there's going to be a very high failure rate. Right. And how do you, when you, when a company is this kind of size and even back in startup, how do you build culture, right? Yeah. How do you see culture and, and how do you make sure that the company has a great culture to facilitate that kind of growth? Yeah. I mean, I think culture, you know, it's ultimately a lot of it is around alignment and buy-in to what you're trying to get done. Um, you know, are people excited about the problem you're trying to solve? Uh, do they agree on the way they want to work together and the, um, sort of the shared values uh, that you want to um, that you want to make your hiring, firing and promotion decisions around. Um, and you know, are you generally agreed on, on the approach of how you're going to get there over time? Uh, and I, you know, when I've seen cultures go really well, yeah, you know, the best cultures I've been part of, we were working really hard. We were all really excited about what we were doing. There were consistent and steady wins. Um, you know, and, if you get that positive momentum, a lot of the other things, you know, fall to the wayside. Um, you know, when it's tough is when things aren't going well. And I think that's the real test of a culture is when, you know, company's not doing well, you know, the cash isn't rolling in, everything's not up and to the right. Uh, and, you know, I had an experience with, um, with my first CEO role where it was a turnaround situation. We had a lot to fix. And, you know, I think ultimately what got the, got the culture where we needed to be was just we were super transparent about what problems needed to be solved. Yes, there were a hundred fires burning, but we were going to fix them in this order. And these were the top three and let's get those knocked out and we'll go on to the next. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think just getting people rallied around those problems and those opportunities. Um, and you know, some people opted out. It was not a fit. They did not want to be there. Those were not the problems they wanted to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were looking for people that, you know, when the house was on fire, they grabbed a bucket. Uh, they didn't go run screaming down the street. <laughs> So uh, it took us a little while to find that, but we got it. And, you know, ultimately we got the company turned around. And, and for, for turnaround, like, because I think like when it comes to business, turning around a company is like probably the most difficult thing to do because yeah. you go in there, there's a, there's a fine, like there's only so much time that you have to turn it around. Otherwise, basically, like you said, a house is on fire. It's going to burn down to the ground, right? You only have got so much time. Like you say, you've got a hundred things that you got to fix and, and you're prioritized what did you do to turn that around? Or let's say for someone watching this, then maybe they're not in a turnaround situation, but maybe they're even in a decline. What yeah. do they need to do first, second in order to turn that around? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the beauty of being in those situations is um, it's actually quite, uh, there's just a lot of clarity that comes with it. Mm. Um, you know, again, if the house is on fire, you're not worried about a leaky, leaky faucet. Um, right. You know, so you just don't have time to deal with a lot of things that, just aren't going to move the needle. And, you know, when everything is going well, I think the risk is you end up spending a lot of time and effort and resources on things that you think might work, but you're not really sure. Um, because you can afford to take those bets, you end up burning a lot of cycles on things that just don't really 
that aren't going to drive an impact. So, uh, you know, the beauty of being in those situations is time is short, resources are short, and you just don't, uh, you don't have time to, to screw around with things that don't matter. Uh, so that, I think that clarity uh, can be quite refreshing while also being an extremely unsettling. Uh, but I think, you know, and again, in this case, like there was, there's clearly a group of people who they wanted the company to succeed. They believed we could do it. They bought into the mission and the vision of the company. Um, and along with that, um, you know, we just, we got rallied around solving that problem and, and we were able to put all the fires up on the board and figure out what were the first, second, third priorities. And there's a group of people who they weren't comfortable with that level of uncertainty and they moved on and that was fine. Like, you know, that I completely understand that that is not ever the situation that everybody wants to be in. Right. Right. But we ended up with a smaller, leaner team of people who really wanted to, to fix the problem. And then you know then who who is the the loyal member and who wants to like go, right. go to the battlefield with you and of course after turning around they assume they also share the the wins and the, and the joy like what could better solve great I mean I, you know we still have that team still gets together for drinks they go on vacations together like it's nice. it's fun from I don't they don't necessarily invite me all the time but uh, I get to see it on uh, Facebook and Instagram so that makes me feel good <laughs> nice awesome awesome and then for for. As you when you when you join uh, Skillshare, uh, wh- how much were the company doing back then? How many people? And after you joined, what have you done like in terms of scaling size? What are like the before yeah. and after, right? Yeah. So we uh, when I joined, we were probably thirty five employees, give or take. Okay. Uh, we're about seventy five right now. Nice. Uh, our revenues have grown. So the last two and a half years, we've grown a little over four x uh, in revenues. Um, we've had. Uh, we've had a great couple of years and we've got a lot of momentum. Yes. And then the reason for that growth, like what are some of the le- lessons you can extract in terms of scaling a company? Like that's four times. That's huge. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we, we figured a lot around, uh, figured out a lot on the paid marketing side. Uh, the company uh-huh. had grown a lot of our growth. So our business is online classes. Um, yes. Anybody can come in and teach a class. Um, and so in the early days, a lot of our, our student growth came through the teachers. So we would go out, recruit teachers, bring them onto the platform, give them tools to bring students with them. Mm. So in 2016, we went from 2,000 classes to 12,000 classes in a single year. Right. And all of those teachers came in, they brought students with them. Right. Uh, that started to top out in 2016. Uh, so we started to uh, um, sort of have trouble scaling as we got into uh, later in the year. And the good news is we hadn't done anything on the paid marketing side. So all that growth had been organic through those teachers. Mm. Uh, we started to just gradually, slowly test and iterate on paid marketing. Um, and we came at it from a lot of different angles and we eventually started to, you know, you start to put money in, you figure out what's optimal. Great. You take that, set it aside, start to scale it, test something new, figure out what works. Great. Set that aside, start to scale it. So just through that, Test and optimize, test and optimize, mm. and from you know, zero uh, in marketing spend to you know, millions of dollars a month uh, in marketing spend, and it's mm. highly efficient, super uh, super quick cash recovery period, uh, and it's taken a hell of a lot of work to get there, uh, mm. but we did it very incrementally over the last couple of years. 
Okay, so in the beginning, that is the organic growth, and but also that kind of builds the foundation, right? That right. you're not yeah. too rush into. Wow, let's let's just spend a bunch of money and scale. No, let's make sure the the organic growth. The students are happy. The teachers are bringing the students. Now you have more courses to offer. Also, I assume the the lifetime value of the students also go up, right? Now they afford you to to spend more on 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 growth. Yeah. And and that's you know the beauty of our business because it's subscription because it's open platform. Right. We, every New student we bring in, teachers make more money. As teachers make more money, they want to teach more classes. With every class they teach, the value of that subscription gets better. Um, so we have a really nice flywheel effect. Yeah, 100%. And as you scale, works great. Um, you know, I think the in any of these two-sided platform models, you always have the chicken and the egg problem in the early days. Mm. Uh, I had this at Odesk. We had this at Visually. We had this at, at Skillshare. Uh, and the reality is, in the early days, you got to fake the chicken. Um, so you got to pick one side that you're going to manually intervene to get the flywheel going. Mm. So for Skillshare, that was the, the supply side. So we went out and manually recruited teachers. Mm. Now that we've got scale, we have five to 600 classes a month mm. and we don't do a thing. And those are new classes coming in every single month without us intervening at all. We still do some targeted recruiting. We right. still big name influencers on, but if we didn't touch a single thing, we'd right. have, 100 to 600 fresh new classes. Right. That doesn't happen, you know, out of the gate. So we had to manually intervene to get things flowing. And then uh, once you get that flywheel spinning, it starts to take on a life of its own. And do you find that always, is it always a, okay, let's focus on students, like teacher, teacher, teachers, and then, okay, no, we need more students now. Students, 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 students. And then, no, we need more teachers now. It's, it's always kind of like a seesaw, right? That's right. And, and we, we definitely have, we saw that when, we had the explosion of teachers in 2016, you know, the old econ supply and demand curves. Right. If supply explodes, earnings go down. Right. So our teacher growth was faster than our student growth and teacher earnings were dropping. That was not good. So yeah. we flipped and we sort of, we let teachers grow organically. We didn't put as much resource into that. Mm. We started really focusing on student growth. Now teacher earnings have been rising. Mm. Teacher earnings, the average earnings for our, top 10% of teachers have, you know, uh, basically tripled over the last couple of years. So, um, you know, you're always trying to balance. And then, you know, you look at any marketplace, it's not one monolithic marketplace. It's a bunch of sub marketplaces. So maybe within graphic design, we've got a really healthy supply and demand dynamic, but then within, you know, 3d animation, we're a little, you know, we're a little light on supply and a little heavy on students. So we need to go get that supply onto the platform. So you're always, you're getting a little more granular and a little more nuanced in how you look at the platforms over time. Mm. And, and how do you deal with competitions? Like you had like Udemy and then a few other, like these kind of platforms uh, from your perspective, what's, what's Skillshare's advantage and, and how do you compete with, with all these other platforms? Yeah. Uh, so I think there's, there's really two things. Number one is that um, uh, if you, if you had a two by two matrix with open platform versus uh, open platform where anybody can come in and teach or a closed platform where they teach all of their own classes, right. um, we have some significant advantages to being open platform. Uh, if we were to sit down as an editorial team and try to decide what content to produce, we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong sometimes, but the lead time to, to get a class out is really long. It's months. Um, meanwhile, in an open platform, teachers are telling us what's popular. Like they'll, the trends pop up on Skillshare before we ever see them coming. 
So mm. Procreate is a great example. It's a hot uh, iPad design software, illustration software. Um, mm. We would never have picked that out, but the community, it, it organically popped up to the community. So the open platform is always going to have a depth and breadth of content that's really hard for a closed platform to keep up with. Um, meanwhile, on the subscription versus a la carte side, um, we're subscription. There's a reason we're all paying Spotify $10 a month instead of paying $1.29 per song on iTunes. Right. We've been conditioned to consume content in a subscription model. So, so like even Netflix and all these other subscription models. So, um, you know, the combination of being open platform and subscription, all you can eat model, it allows our students to explore, try new things. If you don't like class A, great. Take class B. It doesn't cost you anything. So I just think we have a much stronger business model. I think it was harder to get started because of some of that chicken and egg dynamic that I was talking about earlier. Right, right. Um, but now that we've got scale, I just, we've got a ton of momentum. Uh, and that's really hard to, uh, it's hard to build, but once you get it going, uh, it really makes a difference. I think the second advantage we have is just to focus on creative. Um, we, we made a conscious decision a little over a year ago to really double down on creative classes, creative content, creative teachers, creative students, um, design. When we say creative, like, like design and, and like all, all that category, right? Exactly. So design, illustration, animation, photography, animation, yeah. mm-hmm. watercolor. Um, and, you know, we were pushing into business and tech uh, a year and a half ago, and that was driven by me because mm-hmm. I was just, I was concerned that... That's your background too, right? So uh, exactly. yeah. There's a joke that there's nobody more off-brand in the company than the CEO. <laughs> um, so, uh, I love it. Where yeah. we do best, it's with the, you know, it's a 28-year-old freelance designer. That's our core market. And uh, so the more we pushed into business and tech, if it was a creative adjacency like marketing, we could yeah. do pretty well. If it was finance and accounting, it was hard. And, you know, at some point you take yes for an answer. Like everything we did on the creative side was working really well. Mm. Everything we did in the business and tech side, unless it was directly adjacent to creative, uh, it was hard. So we've just decided let's focus on that and let's be the best in the world with that. Let's build a global community Mm. around that creator mindset. Do you think it's because I think in terms of the marketplace need where uh, someone can can take a course, they can go out there and, and already produce results. They can do better design. They could charge more money. Like this is like that gap, right? It's not like they take a, a long course. It's something that's quick or they're stuck in a certain thing where I don't know how to use this particular software. I can go in, Skillshare, watch it, boom, problem solved, right? Is it also because of that? Yeah, and that, you know, when you look at, I mean, if you are... You know, Adobe rolls out the next version of, yes. uh, you know, Premiere, X dot, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to run down the community college to get a tutorial on the latest version. Like, mm. meanwhile, somebody on our platform, the second that thing rolls out, somebody's mm. working on the class and getting it up. So within a weekend of a new software, a new version, a new technique, it's up, it's live. So if you want to stay fresh, you want to stay current, you want to know what's going on uh, in the moment. Mm. It's just not going to go anywhere else and get better content. And in terms of open platform, I think that's the advantage because from idea to marketplace, you can, you can respond to the need in the marketplace in, like I said, maybe a week 
or maybe they already know that feature is going to be coming up and the teachers are more motivated. Hey, I launched a new course. It's going gonna, it's gonna to sell well. And right, yeah. they're, they're motivated to be on the cutting edge. And of course, there always updates all the time, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, we, and we can actually see it coming before anybody knows it's coming. So nice. Again, I'll go back to Procreate. Like all of a sudden, we still saw the search volume pick up. Somebody launched a Procreate class and it went through the roof. Right. Uh, and then next thing you know, we've got 15 Procreate classes. So it's, uh, it is fascinating to watch. I think we, we, can, we are in a position where we can spot the trends and spot what's hot long before anybody else sees it coming. Mm. And in terms of business model, so uh, the, the teachers, uh, what's the business model? Like how well you pay the teachers? Are they getting paid? Like do they feel they're getting compensated enough? Yeah. I'm sure because that, that's how they're motivated. Like how does that work? Yeah, so we, uh, it's similar to Spotify. So we pay out on a royalty model. So we take a certain percentage of our revenues. Right. Uh, we package that into a royalty pool uh, based on our monthly revenue. Yeah. That then gets divided across all of the teachers based on their relative share of the minutes watched in that month. So you produce a hit class and you get lots of minutes watched. You get yeah. a lot bigger chunk of that royalty pool that month. Nice. Uh, so teachers are incentivized to produce content that people are going to engage with. And mm -hmm. if you watch 30 seconds and bail, it's not a good class. You're not going to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. If you watch it, if you create a class that, you know, people not only watch it once, but three or four times, mm -hmm. um, you're going to do quite well. So it, mm -hmm. I think it's a nice alignment of our interests and, and, you know, the, ultimately the students, they paid their money. So the indication of value at that point is where are they going to spend their time? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's a, it's a very elegant model to make sure we're incentivizing the right things. Mm. And do you let the students kind of also participate? Hey, I want more of these subject yeah. in classes. Or do you, do you, can they rate certain teachers and say, hey, this teacher is phenomenal. We love his or her content. Like, do you have something like that in place? Yeah, so we have, we've got a couple, you know, the, the challenge of any open platform is on the curation side, right? Yeah, if, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so whether it's Skillshare or Upwork or YouTube, mm. uh, you don't want to see, there's a long tail of stuff that probably isn't worth uh, the light of day. Yeah. Uh, so how do you make sure that the best content rises to the top and the content that doesn't meet your standards that never makes the cut? So every right. single class we have gets reviewed. Um, so there's a, about a third of the classes that get uploaded get rejected by our editorial team. Uh, wow. So they have to meet our standards for the educational content, the structure mm. of the class, uh, the audio quality, the video quality. Um, and there's a balancing act because it could be a very good class that just happens to be in a very niche topic that mm. doesn't go get a lot of minutes watched, mm. there's a lot of value in having lots of that content. So we want to be screening for, is it a good class as opposed to are lots and lots of people going to watch it? Mm. Um, that's mm. the power of the open network. Um, but then once a class is live, we can see all the engagement statistics. So bounce rates, minutes watched, percentage completion. Um, we can see we have reviews, we have community flagging. So if there's something in a class that doesn't meet our guidelines, mm. students flag it. Uh, so we've got, we've built a lot of mechanisms to make sure that the content quality stays high. Mm. And, and how do you uh, manage in terms of like your executive team and, and your team? Like how do you structure that? Yeah. So uh, our management team uh, is you know, divided up functionally. So head of marketing, head of operations, head of product, head of engineering. Uh, I've got a controller that reports directly to me. Um, so it's, you know, very functionally based. Uh, in terms of our management routines, we have a uh, a meeting every Monday afternoon where we go through the business operations. So kind of the, okay. 
core metrics, the KPIs, kind of the updates on you know the pillars that we've identified nice. um, as the key uh, key areas of focus. That's so kind of our business update. So we spend about an hour. It's the executive team plus the directors. Um, and then we go into a, we call flex agenda, which is just the executive team and it's whatever we want to talk, talk about. So we keep a, an open Google doc. We all drop things, you know, that's where we, mm. you know, all the cross pollination happens in that meeting. Hey, I saw this. I don't understand about that. Like, why right. did you do this? So we get through a lot of just the super tactical information sharing in that meeting. Uh, and then Wednesday mornings, we have a two hour block for the bigger strategic discussions. So we're kicking off this big initiative. Uh, we may have a department come in on, and present a retro on something that either went really well or something that didn't go so well. Uh, <laughs> yes. But we try to reserve that time for the bigger, deeper dives, higher level topics, more strategic areas of focus. Uh, so that's kind of our weekly cadence. Um, and uh, in those meetings, we'll either do you know, a typical PowerPoint presentation, whenever possible. I prefer the kind of Amazon memo style where you actually have to write a document, uh, which is harder and it takes more time. But uh, ultimately, I think you end up with a better discussion that way. So we, we're, not, uh, we're not maniacal about the memo format, but um, we'll kind of go back and forth depending on the, uh, depending on the topic. And it takes some, they, they take some time to kind of think through, think through it and, and as they're writing it and they have to be concise and articulate whatever they're working on with the whole team, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that, that, that process alone, sometimes you write through it. No, that's like a waste of time. Why, why are we even doing it? Right? A lot of times I will write a memo that only I see. Yeah. Uh, I outline everything. So like I have, you know, thousands of outlines that are, you know, dying a quiet death in Google Drive. Um, right. That's just how I... Before we get to the second half of today's show, I want to share with you my new book. It's called Unlock It, the master key to wealth, success, and significance. If you're listening to my show, if you want to take your income and your business to the next level, Unlock It. It is a book for anyone who wants to understand how to build wealth fast and multiply it. It is a sum of all my most profitable business, and success strategies. I can tell you that out of the 13 books that I've written in my entire career, this is my finest work yet. Get your copy today. Go to www.unlockitbook.com, unlockitbook.com. Also, you'll get some exclusive bonuses when you get your copy today. Again, go to www.unlockitbook.com. I kind of organize my thoughts. What are some of the common mistakes or, or myths that you believe that their CEOs make or that they believe in when it comes to growing a company? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the one phrase that always makes my skin crawl is the, uh, oh, it's so lonely at the top. Mm. Uh, you know, A, nobody feels sorry for the CEO. So, like, don't... Don't even try to, you know, get sympathy. Yeah, I get, uh, it. I get it, yeah. Like, if you, were, if you feel lonely at the top, I don't think you've done a good job of surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, mm-hmm. I've got an amazing executive team. I bounce ideas off them all the time. Uh, I've got a super engaged board that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, they care as deeply about the business as anyone else. Mm. I've got outside advisors. I've got friends. I've got a wife. Like, uh, you know, I've got my kids. Like, there's four, four, four daughters, right? Got four daughters who are yeah. plen- always willing to give me an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're always different. Um, 
you know, so I think the, the idea that you are somehow lonely and making hard decisions, like you're just not leveraging the people around you if that's mm-hmm. the case. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. That's a very, very good point. You know, you, I think, yeah. uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, if you build it right, yeah, it shouldn't be like that at all. Yeah, yeah. I just, I've never, I've never felt lonely. Mm-hmm. And, and do you see that now, like even back then when you were, uh, you were working with, with visually and, and all those experience. And it, it seems to me that even the different career, but now it's almost everything leading up to, to Skillshare where yeah. this particular role allows you to take everything you've learned in the past yep. and like prepare, almost like preparing you for, for this particular role. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I mean, and I look at, you know, some of the CEOs I've worked with in the past and just the different styles and the different approaches, mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, you know, so I was asked to, uh, in some interview, like, did you always know you were going to be a CEO? And, you know, the answer is no, but I was paying very close attention all along to who are the good managers, who are the good leaders, what did they do that I liked, what did they do that I didn't like, what are the mistakes I never wanted to make that I saw them make, mm-hmm. uh, what are the things they were wildly successful at that I wanted to get better at. So, um, you know, I think I, I have had the benefit of working for some amazing managers, leaders, CEOs, um, and and just seeing a very wide range of styles. And you you can kind of just pick and choose, all right, what what works for me? What doesn't, what, what can I do? What, you know, there's certain styles I I just can't do. It's not me. It's not Mm going to be authentic if I try to do that version of a CEO. Correct. Uh, But uh, I think the, you know, I look at the finance experience. I look at my Odesk experience. The vision, you know, Odesk gave me marketplace and two-sided platform. Uh, visually, get gave me the creative exposure. Mm. Uh, so yeah, there were a lot of things leading up to Skillshare that you know, when I was looking around for my next thing and I came across Skillshare, it was just abundantly clear that was the right job for me. Mm. And over the years, do you have like like you said like mentors that you look up to or entrepreneurs that you look up to that that had an impact in your life? Like wow, you know that person's a role model or that person is such a such a great leader. Like who are some of those people that have may have impact in your career? Yeah, I mean you know my first manager at J.P. Morgan, I got really lucky. You know, investment banks are not known for uh, supportive, uh, <laughs> intelligent leadership. Right. Right. Uh, but, you know, my, uh, my, man, my managing director, uh, a guy named Kevin Kelty, was yep. just unbelievable. And, you know, usually associates and investment banks get shoved in a corner and you come out, you know, uh, once a week to get some fresh air and sunshine and then you go back into your hole. Uh, you know, he got me out. He got me in front of clients. He let me present. You know, I was, you know, I was just, I got so much more exposure because I worked for him. And that's just dumb luck. I just got lucky. I got mm. attached to the right guy early. Mm. Uh, that gave me a ton of exposure. Uh, you know, the Odesk experience uh, was just phenomenal. I came in just at the right time. I was employee number 23. We were starting to really scale. So, you know, Gary Swart, Odesk CEO, mm. learned a ton from him over the years. You know, I think we had very complimentary styles. Uh, and, you know, we were a lot alike in some ways and, uh, and, and not alike in others, but we just had a great relationship. And like, yes. you know, and I think, you know, so a common theme with Gary and with Kevin, like when I needed to be kicked in the ribs, they kicked me in the ribs. Uh, <laughs> yes. when I deserved some uh, accolades. They gave them to me. And, you know, so I think the uh, and but both of them, they let me run uh, and they let me uh, take some risks and, um, you know, uh, flex a little bit and try some new things. And, and that was just hugely valuable. 
Um, and then, you know, when I got to visually, uh, it was my first CEO role. So I didn't necessarily have the same kind of direct management, but I just had a super supportive board. Um, the board mm-hmm. of investors were, you know, they knew we were in a tough spot. They were super helpful. They were super open. They gave mm-hmm. me a ton of feedback and support. Um, so I just, I have been very lucky to walk into some really good situations for some and working for some really good people over the years. Mm-hmm. And I think people sometimes like when I, when I talk to other entrepreneurs, I think I always tell them that I think entrepreneurs where sometimes we overestimate our own abilities that we want to be like solve our own problems. No, 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 it's okay. I don't need help. I, I'm going to lock myself in the door and figure this out. But sometimes it could be just having a simple conversation or, or yeah. one simple contact that changes like everything. Yeah, well, and I think it also goes back to the you know, my earlier comment about it not never being lonely. Like, mm. you know, I reached a point at my first startup where I just, you know, I had come out of banking where you just put your head down and you're just you just work harder than anybody else. Like, mm. if you can't be smart, you just work hard, <laughs> uh, yeah. and that just doesn't work in the startup world because there just there aren't enough hours in the day. And it got to a point where I was pulling an all nighter two or three nights a week to stay on top of everything, and mm. like. Uh, you know, I had a young family. <laughs> My wife was thankfully still uh, putting up with me, uh, but like it just wasn't going to work. And so it just sort of made me realize the only way I'm going to survive and the only way I'm going to be successful is if I learn how to get things done through other people. Mm. And that means I got to be a better manager. It means I got to be a better coach. Mm. Um, and once that finally clicked, of like I don't have to know the answers. And not only do I not have to be the smartest guy in the room, I never want to be the smartest guy in the room. Like mm-hmm. and that was something that I think Gary uh, really emphasized, like get really good people in the room, build an amazing executive team and then get the hell out of the way. I mean, mm-hmm. our, our VP of marketing, she was, she'd been VP of marketing at Amazon. She had been wow. CMO of, of uh, open table. She went on to be the CMO of Eventbrite. Our CFO had been on the board of kayak and Netflix. Wow. Like, it Super was just, you know, so I walk in the room and I'm like, damn, like I was happy to be there. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so I think seeing him build that kind of team and get that kind of leverage, like, you know, if, if I have to tell my VPs how to do their job, I don't have the right people. So right. Um, I think going through that process of breaking, uh, I just couldn't keep up with it all. So I just, you know, that sort of taught me. And then watching Gary, seeing the leverage the business got when Gary stacked the room with all the right people, mm-hmm. uh, that, was a, that was a great lesson to learn. Mm. And it wasn't, was Gary just focusing more on the, like what was Gary focusing on in terms of as, as a leader of the company? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, he was very externally facing. Um, so, so like out there meeting with people being, being, being this the, very, the advocate. very public focused, uh, mm. you know, investor focused. Uh, so, you know, he, um, he had a team that allowed him to do other things. Uh, and that's, you know, that's something that, um, I sort of found religion on that, and I'm I'm trying to replicate that here. Mm. And I think one of your talk I want I want to talk about this is I think it's a great quote you talk about in one of your talk. You said you can kill your company searching for a silver bullet, but incremental improvement works every time. Can you give us give us maybe an example of like a silver bullet idea, and also maybe an example of incremental improvement? Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, this is where you know visually is a good example. Um, you know, they were closing. The things that were keeping them afloat were they had closed some really big flashy deals. Um, okay. But they weren't repeatable. So, you know, they so had big, big lump sum, looks good, but it's it, and it was repeatable. Got it. Got long it. sales cycle, very intense, yeah. uh, very big name clients, big splash. Um, Sounds good, right? And that's it. Yeah, I mean, it looked good, yeah. uh, but it just wasn't something they could repeat. 
Um, and meanwhile, like the thing that was, they were the best in the world at infographics. Mm. Um, and so they had this high volume uh, infographics business. They were selling these infographics for $1,500 each. Well, it turns out they cost about $2,500 each. Oh, damn. Uh, <laughs> that, was not a, you know, that wasn't going to work. Um, oh, good model right there. <laughs> it's got a problem. I came in and you know, I'm like looking at these big deals that we had signed with these big brands. I'm like, we can't repeat this. Mm. Um, so we can keep chasing these and hoping for more home run swings, mm. but we just aren't connecting enough. So how do we get really good at the infographics and get those unit economics right and build off of that? Mm. Um, so we, you know, we doubled, tripled the price of our infographics, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and as we got those unit economics down and we started to scale that more efficiently, okay, what's the next step up, right? So now how do we go from selling a $2,500 deal to selling a $5,000 deal and then a $10,000 deal and then a $20,000 deal mm. rather than going after $200,000 deals? Mm. Um, it just, you know, there's shorter, shorter sales cycle too. Exactly. And shorter cash cycle. So mm. if you're in, you know, if you're not in a great spot and you're burning cash, um, you can't afford an 18 month sales cycle. Mm. So, you know, I think the kind of go collapsing back to, all right, what's our core? What are we best at? What are, what can we do better than anyone? Mm. Making sure that we're making the right amount of money every single time. And then let's go sell the hell out of it. Mm. That's ultimately what got the, got the positive flywheel spinning. Mm. On, on the pay traffic side, in terms of scale, what has been working well for, for Skillshare? Is it, is it Google? Is it Facebook? Like what has been working well for, for you guys? Yeah, I mean, for Skillshare, we just do a lot of influencer marketing. Um, Interesting. We look at, at our market and, you know, where our demographics, our demographic skews young. Like 80% of our users are younger than 40. Uh, 25 to 34 is our largest demographic. 18 to 24 is our fastest growing demographic. Um, they're on YouTube. They're on Instagram, um, you know, so those are, that's where we have gravitated for all of our, uh, our paid marketing. We do podcasts, we do some Google, we do some Facebook, um, but we've really figured out, we've kind of cracked the code on Instagram and, uh, and YouTube. Which also makes sense because if you are thinking about like the, the teachers that you want yeah. in, the, in the graphic space, right? <laughs> that, yeah. That's exactly where, where the, the, the audience is, right? Where they are at. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, you know, again, and this, the clarity of saying, all right, we're focused on the creator mm -hmm. and 80% of our users are freelancers or want to be freelancers. So mm -hmm. we've got young, we've got creative, we've got freelance. Like as we got really focused in on who we're solving for, what they need, where they go. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that's another good lesson I have learned over the years. Mm -hmm. The more focus you can get, the easier life becomes. Mm -hmm. Because when you're trying to be all things to all people, you just can't build a product around it. You can't target your messaging. You can't target your brand. Right. Um, just everything kind of just gets washed out. And once we said, all right, we're very comfortable that we can build a big global business being the go-to global destination for online creative learning. Mm -hmm. uh, it just, everything felt right. Yeah. So it's almost like this online learning, this like red ocean, but you say, you know what, this is the blue ocean. This is what we're good at. This is, this is where we understand the marketplace. This is where we have the teachers. Let's make this so strong that anyone even wants to come in and, and, and compete in this space, but you're so established and the yeah. community knows you, the students know you, the teachers know you. It's, it's almost impossible, right? Well, and, you know, and this is the power of platform businesses. We've got 26,000 classes now. Yes. It's, yeah, it's Why amazing. are you going to go pay for anything else? 
Like we've got, <laughs> we've got more content, we've got more teachers, we've got more engagement. Um, it just uh, the value we can deliver at that price. I just think it's really hard to find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And all, can you also talk about uh, a little bit about like adding too much value as an executive? Like what do yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. So this was uh, a blog post. I le- I mean, I think it's probably been 15 years ago since I read this blog post by uh, uh, Marshall Goldsmith. He's one of these sort of management gurus. Yes, lo- love Marshall's work. I his books yeah. and everything. I love his work. Yeah, and so he uh, he wrote a blog post about adding too much value, and the, and the gist of it is. Uh, smart people and, and particularly smart managers and, and early managers, when you're early in your career, you feel obligated to add value to everything, right? I'm the manager. I should know more. I should be able to help. I should be smarter. I should be, have more experience, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And the problem is when, when one of your employees comes to you and says, hey, I've got this idea. Yeah. And you say, yeah, great. But what if we blank? Now it's not quite their idea. Now it's a little bit of your idea. And the more you do that, you end up actually taking some of the ownership and the engagement, the equity in their solution away from them. So now they're not solving their problem that Mm. they put forward. They're Mm. solving your problem that you adapted to make your own. Mm. Um, And so there are situations where maybe your version of their idea is actually truly better, Mm. but they're just not going to execute it on on it as well because they're not as bought into it. Mm. Um, So sometimes you're going to end up, the company is going to end up better off if they execute on their idea that they are 110% behind mm. versus them giving an 80% effort to your idea that's a slightly better. Correct. Uh, Correct. And, and it's hard. It's hard to sit on your hands, uh, but you got to decide, is the value I'm adding so much better that it's worth taking a little bit of the agency away from them? Um, you know, and in many cases, the best thing that you can do is just keep your mouth shut and say, hey, great idea. Go for it. I can't wait to see the results, mm. uh, which is hard to do as a manager, but yes. sometimes you just got to let them run. Yes. And I, I think it's also being able to give permission to your team that they, they could make mistakes, right? Because right. they could learn from me, even though sometimes when I see my executive, well, no, that's not a good idea, but you know what? I'm going to let them give it a try. Because if I, every time I stop them, the next time they, they may be, oh, they're afraid to come up with ideas. They're afraid to be proactive. So even though I know 90% of that's wrong, I'm like, okay, I'm going to let you just, it's like a kid, right? You got to let them fall down to come to, to stand back up, right? They have to learn the lesson. Well, and also, it also assumes that you're right. You know, yeah, like, maybe, yeah, 100%. Yeah, that, you know, a lot of times you think you're adding value and yeah. they were actually right to begin with. So. That's right. That's right. That happens all the time. I've done that enough times. It, it makes it easier to keep my mouth shut. Yes. And then more and more so, they surprise you with, with better ideas. Nowadays, I'm like, okay, like my ideas are like not even that good. You can come yeah. up with the better ideas, right? Well, and that's, you know, along those same lines. So my, my dad is actually an executive coach. Um, and he, uh, there's a particular style of coaching that's very, it's, well, of, uh, it's, it's a, I guess, a coaching-based methodology where you're not actually telling them anything. Yes. You're asking them the questions to get them to an answer that they're confident they're thinking, in. Right. And yes. you know, the beauty of it is you don't act, you know, then as the manager, you don't have to know the answer. Right. You just have to know what questions to ask to get them to an answer that they're comfortable with that they can go execute on. Um, I love it. And part of the presumption is that you as the manager, you don't know the answer. Uh, and again, back to the, uh, you know, not having to be the smartest guy in the room. It's kind of a liberating approach when you say, well, I don't know. What do you think? 
Yeah, I don't know what he uh, thinks. That's right. You know, people usually come back with some pretty good stuff. Right. Uh, I'm curious, in your vision, where do you see Skillshare in the next like, three years? Like, what are some of the goals uh, you have for the company? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, one of the more interesting trends over the last 12 to 24 months has been our international growth. Hmm. Uh, we have done very little to drive growth in the international markets deliberately. Hmm. Uh, I think close to 40%, uh, sorry, 60% of all new free trials are coming from outside the U.S. now. Wow. We have no, we have no targeted international marketing. We've run some tests here and there. Uh, we have no localized content. Everything's in English. Um, you know, we just, uh, we have, we don't, we haven't optimized for uh, local payment methods. So like there's a ton of demand internationally. So we're spending um a lot of resources to you know improve the international site speed, improve international payment methods. Uh, we're looking at subtitles. Uh, so, like, how do we just make it easier for that international crowd to get the value mm. uh, Skillshare that they want? So, international is a huge one for us. Mm. Uh, and then, really uh, doubling down on community. We've always had a very community-based approach. Um, mm. When you take a Skillshare class, there's a project associated. You actually do work. You upload it. People can give you feedback. They can give you constructive criticism. You get feedback from the teachers. You can give comments on other students' projects. We have discussion groups and forums, and uh, we've launched workshops. So you can go through a sequence of classes together as a group of students. Um, so we're really focused on tightening those connections between users and, and between the students and the teachers because mm. uh, we, we just have a general theory that You'll come for the class, but ultimately it's the community connections or what's, what's going to hook you for the long term. Very, very true. Uh, one thing I always say, people, 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 people join your company, people buy from you because of what you sell, but they stay with you because of who you are, right? Yeah. I think that teacher-student connection is absolutely key. Part of it that's also makes, what makes our company work, where we have live events, we have the engagement. And so it's not just an online course. Quick, this online course is it's just a bunch of videos. What's, what's so special yeah. about that? But when you have that human component, now you have something very, very special, right? Yeah. Well, particularly with, uh, with creative pursuits, I think, you know, create, creative work in general, anytime you're building anything, and it doesn't matter whether it's a painting or it's a, a company, yeah. you're, you're very exposed. Um, you know, when you're trying to build something new, there's always the chance that people are going to look at it and say, that kind of sucks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think the, uh, having a very supportive community around all of that work, anytime you're building anything, again, doesn't matter whether it's a you know a sculpture or a startup. Uh, having a supportive network around you is really important. Um, I uh, it's kind of become a running joke. I, I've started taking some of these beginner drawing classes. So <laughs> as a CEO, finally. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, I drew a tree, you know, and I uploaded my tree, and I was a little nervous about uploading my tree. Nice. Um, and you know, people get in, they start commenting on my tree, like hey, it's a pretty good tree. <laughs> uh, so this week I uploaded uh, uploaded a bird. Um, yeah. Now I've drawn drawn a tree and a bird, yeah. uh, and you know again now like my bird is uh, circulating and I'm getting positive constructive feedback on hey that actually looks like a bird. Wow. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it is fun. I think the community adds a, a really nice uh, nice feel to the product. 
That's awesome. The good thing is you've got 22,000 classes you, you can learn from, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and if my bird sucks, I can bury it. Nobody will ever see it. Nobody knows. You can delete that. Nobody knows. I love it. Least, I love yeah, it. Most of the employees feel obligated to tell me that my bird looks good. So. <laughs> uh, awesome. So Matt, if um, for, for my audience, if they want to, they say on, on, a, on a student side, they want to learn more, of course, they can go to Skillshare or Skillshare.com. Um, on the teacher side, if they have talent, if they want to do uh, create yeah. courses, how could they apply? Yeah, so uh, anybody can come in and start uh, start teaching class at any time. So uh, we we run periodic um, uh, we call the Teach Challenge. So oh. we will actually sort of shepherd a group of new teachers mm. through the process of teaching their first class. So it's sort of a guided, facilitated process of create your outline, kind of put together your course curriculum, mm. you know sort of script it out, figure out what exhibits, you know, shoot your intro. So we kind of walk you through it step by step. Mm. We talk about what tools you need and, you know, honestly, uh, a good, a good phone video and uh, an external mic and uh, iMovie, you can produce a pretty damn good class. Uh, so we walk talking like super fancy camera or anything like yeah, that. And stuff. Yeah. A $40 snowball mic off of Amazon and in mm-hmm. your, you know, iPhone, you can capture some really good in some, you know, you can go to Home Depot and buy some clip lights. I, I could also see maybe students could later on become teachers too. Once they get Actually, better, they get more our, right? Our number one source of new teachers is our students. Oh, um, wow. Because you come in, you know, you're, you're a, you know, you're an illustrator and you come in to learn this new technique or learn, learn this new software. Mm. Uh, and then you realize, Hey, like I'm actually an expert on this other thing. I could teach mm. a class in that. So we see a lot of that. And one of the ways that our team, uh, helps foster new student or new new teachers as we look through the projects. Mm. So as students are taking classes and they're creating these amazing projects, our community team will flag them and say, "Hey, that looks like you know he or she could be a great teacher. Let's mm. reach out and see if we can get them into the next teach challenge." Right, and I could see that because then they, they, it's almost like as a student, they learn from the teacher, they get inspired, they get educated. Now they not only they turn it into a revenue stream, an income stream, but they kind of want to give back, right? Hey, I want to do that too. Right? I want to be the one that can inspire other students as well. I, I can see that works very well. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a great resume builder as well. I mean, for, yeah, for freelancers, you know, the interesting thing about the, the freelance economy, you don't have, you know, it's not your LinkedIn profile isn't what gets you your job. It's your portfolio, right? It's yeah. show me what you've actually done. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care if you worked for Google. I care about what you can produce. And show so forward. you can come to me and show me an amazing portfolio. And then you can show me a class that has 5,000 students who have given you positive feedback. Mm. All right. That's mm. a really important stamp of credibility. Mm. Suddenly as a graphic designer, their status has been elevated, sure. right? They can charge more than they can work with better clients. Yep. That's so amazing. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. I mean, I, I'm learning a lot. Um, it's, it's been great. I know we've been trying to schedule this interview for a long time, yeah, but I'm, I appreciate glad, it. I'm glad that we could, it, it happened. Well, uh, I'll, send you a link, I'll send you a link to my bird so you can go in and make me feel good about it. I'll give you a thumbs up. <laughs> Five star. <laughs> All right, good. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take right, care. Thanks, Dan. Great talking with you. That's it for today's episode of the Dan Lok Show. Head over to thedanlockshow.com and be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. You are guaranteed to expand your thinking, your network, and your network. So be sure to subscribe to the show today. 
Dan also has a gift for you. Go to www.danlockshow.com because there are bonuses when you subscribe.